Does everybody have notes? Okay. Well, it's a privilege to preach this morning. And uh, it's about fishing. And those who really know me know I like to fish. Grew up on the Colorado River. Learned how to fish every which way you can fish. We did not have fish finders. I'm sorry. We did it the hard way. And I go kayak fishing with my sons, and we don't use fish finders there. And Jesus was the only fish finding in our story today. So let's pray for a moment. Father, a difficult passage to cover, maybe because of the breath or maybe because of the newness of ideas, maybe because we've not heard the things we're going to hear. But, Father, my prayer is that Jesus might increase and that I and we might decrease. That the Holy Spirit will enable us to hear and respond accordingly. In his name we pray. Amen. I used this passage about 30 or 40 years ago. And of course now, anytime I come back to something I've preached before, it's always different. And I need to apologize to you before I get started. A lot of pastors who use examples, they go to a book of examples. There are lots of books with examples. I know where they've fallen from. I don't do that. My examples come from what I've experienced, what I've seen, what I know. And so that's what I'm going to be sharing. I'm not boasting. I'm just trying to give examples of what the truths are that we're going to talk about today. This particular miracle in Luke 5 that we're going to read and talk about is unique. It does not occur in the other Gospels. There are five other miracles in the Gospel of Luke that are also unique. They all deal with medical issues, Dr. Bruce. But this particular miracle is unique. So turn with me in your Bibles, and we will start reading. Actually, in chapter 4, there's a lot of background we need to sell, but we'll start here. Chapter 4, verse 42, and then we'll read through Luke 5. And when day came, he departed and went to a lonely place, and the multitudes were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues in Judea. Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the lake of Galilee, and he saw two boats laying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but your bidding will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. They signaled to their partners in their other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement has seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. So also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, for now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. There are some significant events that occur prior to this. If you look through the Gospels, you will see in John chapter 1 that he came across Peter, John, Andrew, and James. Yeah, it came across this foursome at John the Baptist. And they followed Jesus. And I believe that's when they came to saving faith. And then we see again a little later in Mark 1. And turn with me to Mark 1, just so you see it in print. I always remember things when I see them in print a lot better. Mark 1, 16. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his, the brother of Simon, cast in their nets, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, I'll make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed. And going on further, he found James Zebedee and John, his brother, who were also mending their nets. And he called them. So it's important to see here that Jesus had called these disciples already. And they had already been called. And guess what? They went back to fishing. And so when you look at the miracles of Christ, and I really like looking at the miracles of Christ in the, in the Gospels, because they give me a timeline for everything. So think through with me real quickly. And I put those in your, your notes. I gave you homework, so you've got to go back and look at them. John 2, the first miracle is at a wedding. Disciples were there. Second miracle, it was in Capernaum, and the nobleman's son, who's healed from a, uh, from a distance, that's in John 4. In Mark 1, the next miracle is at Capernaum in a synagogue. The next, next, set of mir- next miracle is at Peter's home, Mark 1. Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. Jesus healed her. And then shortly after that, Jesus was up 
quite a bit of the evening dealing with all the people from the city and the town coming to him. He cast out demons and he healed. Wedding. Synagogue. Home. City. One place our Lord had not visited yet. The job site. Our Lord will not leave us alone to our own, own advices. He wants us completely. He will hit all those areas as he draws us to it. This is an example that from the Song of Solomon. Draw me, let us run together. Jesus was drawing these men. He would not let them leave. So he draws them. So this is no coincidences. There are no coincidences in the divine pattern of things. There are not. There. Jesus was very popular. People did not want him to leave. They crowded around in the boat. And Jesus came knowing that the disciples would be there. And he had a captive audience on the four fishermen. It was no coincidence Peter's boat was his pulpit. Hmm. Think about that. I'm not saying we need a boat here. I'd feel more comfortable. But that was his pulpit. And when you fish, I don't know, I have fished a lot. Colorado is different. Uh, we fish a lot on the Shenandoah River. That's different. We fished on the Potomac, James River. We, I like kayak fishing. I like fast water fishing. And my sons are a little more courageous than I do. And they like to be stuck in the rapids, right in the middle of the rapids, on top of the rocks. And when I feel courageous, I'll do that. Not necessarily planned, but I'm there. And it's pretty good fishing sometimes. This last fishing trip, there was nothing in the rapids. They were all out of the rapids. But this particular lake that they were fishing on, Sea of Galilee, is 13 miles long, 8 miles wide at the widest. It was at least 80 feet deep to 700 feet deep. 700 feet deep. Think how deep that is. The Colorado River I was fishing on was about 400 feet deep on one side. That is deep. That is a lot of line. And a lot of times in these places, there are ledges. And the fish will hide underneath the ledges. So you really have to know where they are. And there were two ways to fish in those days. They had a... a a drag net that you hook it up between the boats and you drag it in, pull the fish that you pull it in the boat or pull it to shore. Or there's a cast net you cast from the side of the, the bank, throw it out, and all, and all. But you need to understand, commercial fishing men are tough men. As a kid, I remember going to Carpus Christi in Galveston and we would go to the fishing commercial fishing areas, and we would see these bulky men. Their skin was like leather. They were out in the sun all the time, 
And I have been down to New Orleans and visited some of those same kinds of places. And the men involved in that are big, tough. Peter was one of those men. These men were that kind of men. You need to realize that. And so Jesus issues some commands. He says, put out into deep water, let down your nets for a catch of fish. There were four things about his command. He gave him a direction, out. He gave him a destination, deep water. Third, he gave them a deed to do, your nets, drop your nets. And he gave them a definite result, a catch. They had fished all night and not caught anything. Now, a fisherman struggles with that. When my boys catch everything and I'm lucky to get one little perch, that is frustrating and it's very tiring. And these fishermen were making their living with fishing. They needed those catches. Now, we've been on rivers on the Shenandoah where we've caught 100 smallmouth bass in one day. What a catch. And we've had days we were lucky to have 10 between three of us. You never know. It's exciting because there's uncertainty with it. There's fun because you get to talk with your sons or whoever you're with. And these four men were very connected. They were friends. And I love Peter's response. Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But it's your bidding we'll lay down the nets. At your will, at your word, we'll do it. His obedience was contrary. Now think about the things that was contrary. It was contrary to the normal habits of fish. And the fish sometimes be, are very deep because of springs down in the, in the water. I don't know. Some people tell me there are such springs in the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. It was contrary to their knowledge and experience as the best fishermen. These fishermen were no slackers like me. They were no fun fishermen like we have today. They were tough men. They knew the fishing. The they were contrary to the circumstances of the previous night. When you've had a bad day fishing, sometimes it's hard to go out and fish that next day. You're still mulling over the pain of that. I was hot. I was cold. I was thirsty. I was hungry. I don't know if I can go through that again. No excuse. Contrary to that. The recent failure etched easily on their mind. See, that's one of the things in the Christian life that disenables us to do what God has called us to do. We see our failures, and we don't want to experience that failure itself again, and so we put up walls, and they're all around us, protecting us. Well, if you knew about my failures, you would say, my goodness, yeah. I failed as a professor ever getting tenure. One, because of my faith in Christ. Second, because of a dean who didn't like me, my department loved me. And third, because some people at UT were playing games. 
But God kept me there without tenure. I was the only faculty member, associate professor, who was kept there without tenure at the whole university at that time. And my wife said, well, if you'd gotten tenure, they would have messed up your relationship with Lord. That's right. It would have. I had to trust him every step of the way. It's a failure in man's eyes, but it wasn't a failure in God's eyes. God uses failures to prepare us for great things. There's a neat book. If you ever get a chance to get it, it's written by, uh, it's called Failure, The Back Door to Success. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Ah, it's out of Moody, but that's the name of the book. You can find it out there. Excellent book. It's all based out of the Old Testament. It's great. It's great reading. It's challenging. And the other thing, this was contrary to their feelings, the logic of it all, after cleaning the nets and the boat. Couldn't you let us know a little earlier before we cleaned it up? Nope. And what are my friends? Contrary to what your friends are going to say. Oh, look at them fools cleaning their nets and boat again, going out fishing again. Are the physical, contrary to the physical tiredness and emotional frustration after laboring all night. See, that's what obedience is. It's contrary to all seven of those arguments, and you still go. You still go. We will obey at thy word. That's got to be our motto. It has to be our model. And they were obedient. And we see three results of their obedience. They had a mighty success. Nets full. Boats almost sinking. They stretched the resources. That's always going to happen when you're doing what God wants. Your resources are going to be stretched. They won't be ideal, but you'll be stretched. And thirdly, their sidekicks, their friends, were simultaneously recruited for the work. Wow. God always does the miraculous with the least he can do. Absolutely. Now the question you might ask, well, how did the fish get there? Did our Lord in his omnipotence call them? Possibly. In his omniscience, did he know where they are? Best fish fighter in the world. Probably a combination of both. But I want to share an example, and this is just to illustrate. And it illustrates a lot of these principles. When I was at the University of Texas at Austin, I was almost finishing my PhD there. I had one course to go and my dissertation. That's all I had. And God said, I want you to go somewhere else for your Ph.D. That's illogical. Oh, okay. So I applied to a few schools and got accepted all of them. But there was one school, the University of Wisconsin. Well, we know you want to be a good statistician, but we suggest you go to Texas A&M. 
oh, coming from a Texas Longhorn family and relatives, that was like going to the end of the world. But that's where God called us. He was illogical. But that's where he wanted. And as we were obedient to that and got on campus, and I worked on my PhD, I was there four years, so instead of one more year, I had four more, we found out that Campus Crusade had been kicked off the A&M campus. And so God wanted me to start sharing my faith and discipling men and women. And that's what we did for four years. So when I left, there were about 130, 150 students involved in crusade. No staff until the last year. So you never know what God's going to plan. That's how come you've got to be obedient. You never know. You can't see that. You can't make all the excuses you want. But they don't hold water. It was a great time. My wife agrees. It was tough, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Then we have the confession to Jesus by Peter. The immediate impact of the miracle is recorded in verse 9. It was amazement by all while drawing, when drawing in the net of Jesus. When Peter had been drawn into that net of Christ. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The essence of these words somewhat communicates the impulsiveness of Peter. Now, did Peter really realize his own unworthiness and sinfulness in the presence of the Son of God? Partly so. Did he sense that if Jesus could see the depths of the water and command the fish, he could see the depths of his heart and command him as well? Surely so. However, I believe the following two points are the crux of Peter's words. First, it's a confession of his sin of forsaking to follow Christ in the first call and returning to his business instead of doing what God called him to do. God's patient with us. He, he woos us. He'll wait till the circumstances are right. I have always understood that in the discipling world. You can call a, a young man or a young woman to press on further in the Lord. They're not willing. They drag their feet. Some sins bother them. You just keep praying. It'll wait. God will bring them around. There's no magic way it happens. But secondly, Peter had seen all the miracles at the wedding, at the synagogue, his home in the city. And this miracle was in Peter's job, his strength, that he considered himself an expert. Now he was touched at the very core of his being. See, Christ did that for me in my job. Is he called me to be a professor and a pastor from time to time. But my students have an unusual professor. When I was going to class, I was praying for them and praying for how I would teach that day. 
It was different. Christ changes your job. It makes you available and sensitive. I love talking with students. I had an open door all the time. That's part of our job as Christians. With the confession fresh, I love the Lord's words to Peter. Do not fear. I'm not going to put guilt on you. There's no penance you have to do. I'm not going to point out all the other faults in your life. Do not fear. Because fear undermines faith. He didn't do that. For now on you will be fishing for men. What a commission. Right there at the fort. All your past failures, it means nothing. We'll move forward. The world is now your sea. You're going to be catching men. So my perspective to the men and women I've discipled, bloom where God has planted you. Be light in the midst of that darkness. And that is a little bit of the problem we have in Christianity now. We don't have much of that. But if you're going to be a discipler and an evangelist, you have to be that light in the midst of the darkness. So in John 1, they left their leader, John the Baptist. In Mark 1, they left their family ties and business. In Luke 5, they left everything. And follow our Lord. Got to be willing. May not call you to. Got to be willing. Wow. So this miracle was crucial in moving Peter and the three disciples to greater faith in Christ, a greater commitment to a successful service, and so forth. Now, let's look at some of these. I have a lot of life responses. I don't know that I'm going to go through them all. I'll ask you to go through some of them and think on them. No coincidences in the divine stream of law, stream of life. We must learn to rest in him. Now, that's the principle. Hebrews 4 and 5 talk about resting in Christ. That's critical. But number two is one of the big ones for me. God's power is perfected in weakness. We all know that, 2 Corinthians. We emphasize that all the time. You're weak, but he's strong. But what about our strengths? We never talk about our strengths. We always talk about our weakness. You can do nothing apart from me. That even means our strengths are in Zechariah 4.7. Not by my might, not by my power, but by my spirit. Our strengths have to be submitted to him too. It has to be that way. There's no other way. And the sad thing I have seen over the years, I'm older, I've been around the block a lot, still going around the block, but not as much, is when I see older individuals 
who didn't commit their strengths. And as they get older, they flesh it out. Because their strength has never been committed to the Lord. See, some of my strengths, I know what they are. They, they are teaching. And they tended to be self-control until God showed me, oh, you're trusting in your self-control, not the self-control of the Spirit. We have to submit our strengths to. Peter's response to Jesus and obedience was contrary, and we just went to, through all the things they were contrary for. And I'll let you read those on your own. There was no argument, just obedience to Jesus' words. Peter had passed the critical test for being a disciple. That's the critical test. Number four, as we talked about, don't need to expound it, failure preps us for success. I noticed that I, I caught it on the internet. I'm not sure where. There is a particular nation. I don't remember it was India or um, Tokyo or Japan. But they were talking about their education system. And the best students would go into jobs and they wouldn't do well. And the students who had failed and not done so well did well and so the whole recruiting of students for a job changed they would no longer take the best because they wanted to see if people will learn to work through the failure learn from it every failure we have has a place in God's training us teaching us they have a place for us Number five, our Lord was drawing the disciples to a life of obedience and holiness as he modeled how to evangelize with word and deed. You can't share the gospel by word if you don't have a life that communicates it. As he talked them what to learn and what to unlearn. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment. Unlearn. As a kid and I was growing up, I was in some churches, I'm not sure we were there very much, but the essence of what we heard was legalism in every nature and every form. Ugh, it squelched the spirit. It really did. And I came to the Lord at a year, real young age, around eight but I never grew up with any power until I got involved with crusade and understood the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life. My whole life changed. And I was, I was working in Louisiana, one particular church, and I was also discipling and evangelism guys on the cross-country team. And we frequently, because if you've ever been down there during the summer, we would run early in the morning to avoid the heat. Because that was the only way. I'd run 10 miles, I'd lose 10 pounds. Not, it's not what I suggest, losing weight. But that's what happened. And on one of my morning runs, early in the morning, uh, one of the de deputies in town 
who I knew personally, he was in a prayer uh, ministry with me. He called me and said, what are you doing running on Sunday? What? Yeah, I can't. i got to work on Sunday. But you don't have a choice. You have a choice. I have the freedom. And so I proceeded to help him unlearn what he had. We all have things we have to unlearn. We've, they've been ingrained in us. And that's why discipleship is so important. As man meshes with man, as our man is like iron working with iron, it sharpens us. It gets rid of that that we need to lay aside. So the unlearning. And is trained them to be teachers of the word. True disciples should reproduce reproducers which are in the image of Christ. That's what it's all about. Part of my prayer life is spent praying for those I have introduced to the Lord. I pray that they will abide. I pray that my fruit will remain. I pray that their fruit will expand. They will reproduce. See, my, it's expansion of God's work. It's a different way of praying and living. And lastly, not my words, but I was in one of Tozer's books this week. He says, all Christians, all churches are engaged in one of three activities. Guarding the dead past, one, or creating fleshly trifles that will perish with the flesh, two, are working in cooperation with the Holy Spirit in constant creation of eternal treasures that will outlast the stars. That's what God wants. Let us pursue the latter with God's help as we evangelize and make disciples. Father, we can't do this on our own. We need you. We need you to work in our lives where you've planted us and where you want to expand our, our ministry and our church, the community around us. And Father, Father, even as we touch the world with people who come from here and go elsewhere, may you shepherd us as you, we know you will and be gracious as we know you will. In Christ's name. Amen.